0: Well, tonight we move into Galatians chapter 5, and we have been building and building to this with argumentation after argumentation until we get to the directives that we have here, and also some very strong warnings. Um, We have had some um, disclosures and some exposés, if you will, of those that have come into the churches in and around Galatia, and we have um, them... Put in their place, if you will, in the midst of the arguments that Paul has used and trying to convince the Galatians away from one position, the position of adding the law to your salvation to accomplish a right relation with God. And uh, Paul has been very direct in much of it, and we find uh, very similarly a very direct um, teaching here. And we're going to slow down a little bit because there are several facets of this that we want to study tonight uh, and in the weeks to come. Uh, we certainly are looking forward to getting into chapter 5 and the and the distant, the distinction between the life in the spirit and the life in the flesh. Um, that uh, the law, absence of law or... Um, a salvation that is, uh, has fulfilled the law and therefore is not dependent upon and does not mean a life of sin, but rather a life that is spirit-filled. And we're going to be looking at that later on in the chapter. But we want to take a little time to look at the affirmative, and then with that affirmative, what is it that we ought to be living? How ought to we be standing? We're going to have some very serious charges that Paul puts forward. Uh, and uh, they are almost seeming to be in antithesis of his practice in some areas, at least in one area, particularly we're going to look at um, tonight. And so we're going to uh, really only handle uh, a few verses and not all of them. We're going to read the first six verses, uh, but there are really only about two and a half, three verses that we're going to be really tackling tonight uh, in understanding our position. And so let's go ahead and read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and uh, and then we'll have a word of prayer and get into our study. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged. From Christ, You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Let's go, Lord, and pray together. Lord God, we would you thank you for your word before us, and we are challenged by it, and its seriousness, its soberness. And we pray you might give us sober-mindedness as we come to it. That we might uh, seek its truth um, that is plainly there before us, that we might understand its purpose and application to our lives, that we might have a heart willing then to exercise it in our lives on a daily basis. And Lord, we rejoice in what it affirms, and we are well warned and pray that you might direct us to be guarded against what uh, it warns us of. And Lord, we. Do again, as always, pray your spirit might direct this time to your honor, praise, and glory in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have a very bold and and direct command that is in the affirmative, and we like that. Now we have a command to obey. Uh, in my devotions during mostly during college and into seminary, uh, one of the things that I always we, we had this format that I had learned in really in late in high school. And among the things we were to look at in passage after passage was commands to obey, uh, promises to claim and, and commands to obey. Uh, and so this is a very strong affirmative statement, um, to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And we're going to be studying out that liberty extensively, especially when we get a little bit farther along, and its parameters. And this is very important that we understand that liberty is not, and the word that we often use in our christian jargon in our language is license liberty is not license and we try to contrast those and uh, ex- and distinguish between them that it's not permission to do whatever you want and, and if that's your concept what liberty means is i can do whatever i want um the technically that's not what liberty means uh what liberty means is a freedom Uh, to do what is right and to do what is good and and in accordance with the truth. And that's something Paul's going to develop very strongly. Uh, And we're going to find what is the boundaries of liberty because there are boundaries, right? We recognize that the boundaries are necessary and they are good. Uh, We understand the boundaries in this country of liberty, that your liberty ends where (laughs) my face begins, right? Uh, That there are boundaries, that, there are, that you cannot have freedom of speech in the sense that you can say whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. Uh, that just is, uh, some Americans think that's what it means, but it's not. Um, if you say some things, those are called liable. Uh, liable. And so you can go to court and be sued and uh, you can, uh, because you've said something that is wrong about someone and injured their uh, career or injured their person, um, and so you can... Uh, commit that act with your mouth you can yell uh, in a crowded room fire 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 and uh, have everyone storm out and you if anyone is injured or hurt in the midst of that you um, are held responsible um, because you don't have the liberty to do that to cause a riot and chaos um, through your freedom of speech and so liberty has boundaries And so we're going to learn those boundaries. um, Not next week, because next week is our business meeting. So it'll be a few weeks away. We're going to learn about the boundaries of liberty and what it means to have this freedom. But we have this positive command given to the Galatians to stand fast. And this, of course, is a terminology that that, uh, we find consistently in God's word. And it means that you're going to encounter those that that are going to encroach on your liberty. They're going to try to squeeze those boundaries down and, and where God doesn't have them. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were coming in and saying, no, you're not free to eat whatever you want. You're not free to do and to practice uh, your worship whatever. You have to do the law. And those were encroachments. Those were, those were things that infringed on true Christian liberty. Um, that is not the boundary. The law is not the boundary, the, the limits of our liberty uh, we're going to find those later on in the chapter. But uh, he wants us to stand fast because there's going to be opposition. There are going to be those who are going to seek to encroach upon it, to take away your liberty, to rob you of it, is some of the terms he has used already in the book. Um, and he has, he has uh, used some very strong language for those that would do that. So the fact that we are called to stand fast, to to remain firm, um, and it is very, uh, th- this term is very strong in the Greek. Uh, the 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 two words stand fast really just don't give it the oomph of what the Greek has. It's a very emphatic statement, um, not just because it's loud and firm, but uh, it, it's very strongly de- described. Uh, and in fact, I think in uh, my margin, let's see here. Stand fast, therefore, um, and the whole idea is that... Uh, This is an anchor. This is your point of I shall not move from here. This is where I stand. This is where you can buffet me. You 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 can try. This is the place I will stand my ground that I will not step one foot back. This is the line. Do not let them come and violate your liberty in Christ. And we're going to see just how strongly Paul means that in the next few verses. Uh, the next few verses are very disconcerting, I think, for most Christians. And most commentators try to soften these verses. I don't want to do that tonight. I want you to feel the force of what he's trying to say. Let it impact you so you recognize that these individuals that are coming and doing this aren't just um, you know, nice people that are, that are just have their own preferences. These are people that are trying to rob you of your salvation. That makes them false teachers. That makes them very dangerous. And people that we need to address, uh, like Paul addressed them, <laughs> very uh, strongly uh, and not necessarily in couching it in nice terms and not with politeness, but rather with the very direct, strong terms that would put them in their place and identify them clearly as a threat to your Christian life. Yes, your Christian liberty, but even your Christianity, period. And this is the force of this terminology. You had better take a stand here, because if you don't, um, there is no other place that you're going to be able to defend your faith. That if you don't defend it here, if you don't make this last stand, um, which seems almost to be a first stand, but that there's no f- ground, there's no footing underneath that. If you, if you compromise it, if if you sell this part if you take this little plot of land you're standing on now and you, and you abandon that, uh, everything else around you is just going to crumble away because you have, you have no premise for your salvation. We're going to see why here very shortly. So very important word that means you're going to defend your liberty to the last. This isn't just something that, that Paul prefers for you. This is absolutely necessary. And we've already seen some of the argumentation of why, and so it shouldn't surprise you why it's so important that we hold on to our liberty so strongly and defend it uh, uh, with with so much energy, uh, as Paul does not only in Galatians, but in Romans, as in Corinthians even, um, and then the writer of Hebrews and Hebrews as well. And so why do we defend Christian liberty so strongly? Well, um, the next few verses are going to tell us that And so let's go ahead and study them (laughs) and answer that question. Why is it so important that we defend that piece of property called our Christian liberty? And it's really tied in in the balance of the command. By which Christ has made us free. The Christian liberty you have isn't just a privilege that's been afforded you. It is a a, privilege. benefit that has been fully paid that is that it is not something that um, well it's something in my goodie bag from god and so if i don't partake of all of it um, and experience all of god's grace i'm still in the kingdom um, but uh, you know i just forego my liberty Um, and paul says you you might be able to do that on a personal preference basis but on a doctrinal basis you cannot do that because one of things christ has has Accomplished for us. In fact, uh, uh, the, one of the main objectives of Christ to accomplish for us, we often think, well, heaven, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, but really what that involves is setting you free. That there is a freedom. Remember, the law brings guilt. Okay? Law brings guilt. Doesn't bring freedom, doesn't bring release, doesn't bring forgiveness, doesn't bring Uh, deliverance it brings guilt it brings it's a debt it is uh to expose sin and and it really doesn't set forth a means of dealing with sin so we see that christ makes us free this is this is the the work of christ um the ideas of our salvation paul has wrapped up in the idea of christian liberty that once you are free it isn't just your sins are forgiven But the demands of the law are completely met, and therefore they cannot reign over us anymore. And rather we are called a righteousness that is spiritual and not legal. And this is defining our salvation in Paul's eyes. And let's see how strongly he looks at that verse 2. There is a phrase there in verse 5, I haven't addressed, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And I'm going to bring that in here in a little bit. Let's look at verse 2. It says that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Jump down again to verse 4. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Wow. Those are huge phrases for Paul to be using and like everything else in galatians he is very abrupt very direct uh and uh very uh, authoritative in his statements and so he is saying that if you entertain this doctrine if you entertain this idea that we have to keep the law christ is useless to you he was it was pointless for him to come and in fact to to give up this precious property of liberty of freedom that we have in christ freedom from the presence uh from the power from the penalty of sin we use those three p's to describe the fullness of our salvation Um, we are still waiting for the uh, experience of one of those to a large degree Um, but we have the power of sin the penalty of sin and one day completely the presence of sin to be to that we've been set free from that once we say that the work of Christ wasn't sufficient for that, we are denying Christ. That is, we are saying that Christ is not the fullness of salvation. Therefore, I have to add to it for my full deliverance, that he didn't provide enough in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to fully save me. And this is extremely important. So when Paul uses these ideas, he says, listen, if you're going to go to the law, realize what you're doing. You are undermining, when you surrender this patch of property, of Christian liberty, you are undermining who Jesus is and his work. Once Jesus wasn't enough, what is enough? When is there ever enough? How can anyone be enough? If Jesus isn't enough to pay the full price for our sin and to meet all the demands of the righteousness of God, if he isn't enough to make us holy, holy, holy so that we can come into the presence of God Almighty and enjoy uh, that glory that is there, um, if he isn't enough, then no one is enough and nothing is enough. And you have totally evacuated salvation of any meaning you have no salvation if Christ isn't sufficient in and of himself you have no salvation so he uses these terms that you have made Christ profit you nothing that you are estranged from Christ that is you have divorced him yeah he's not your savior because you didn't need him because you're going to keep the law to please God and not recognize that you couldn't keep the law to please God at, at all, in any way, shape, or form. And he also uses this term, you've fallen from grace. So he uses three terms. And we can soft these and say, oh, you know, once saved, always saved, and I trusted in Christ. Remember, every one of these Galatians received Christ under Paul's ministry. He's writing to them, and these are people who have come in behind him some years later and have added the law, and they are giving them audience, and they are giving some credence to their teaching, and they are beginning to adopt some of it. And and, and Paul understands this, and his statement is, to these who have made professions of faith in Jesus Christ, You are endangering your position in Christ if such a position exists. That's how serious this is. I've given you all of these arguments of why Christ is sufficient and faith is what delivers us and all the arguments uh, going back to Abram um, and talking about the work of Christ and even the arguments from my own relationship with you on a personal level... We've developed all these doctrinal arguments. Now I want you to understand the seriousness of not heeding what I've said so far in this book. And that is your very salvation, your very relationship with God is at risk in this situation. You want to go back to doing it yourself? You are snubbing your nose at God and saying, Jesus didn't do enough. As soon as I had one thing that I do in order to um, have this relationship with God. You cannot, and we're not talking about a life that um, is acceptable to God or pleasing God. We're talking about entering into relationship with God. And that's what the Jews were teaching. That without your faith and your works, you cannot be saved. Um, we're, we're not talking about a works um, of serving God out of love and, and thankfulness and to give fruit of your faith. We're talking about you have to keep the law. And that means you'll be circumcised, you're going to keep the Sabbath, you're going to keep the food laws, you're going to keep all of these laws because once you commit to one, you have to hold all of them. Right? He has broken one law, has broken them all. Um, you, you can't keep to one and, and just ignore the other. So this circumcision becomes the key. And his statement is that if you become circumcised, now, your obligation is no longer to Christ. Your obligation is to the law. And all the law ever does is condemn. And therefore, you've brought yourself back into condemnation. You say, well, I didn't think that was possible. I didn't think that could be done. Um, because, you know, First John 5, 12, that we know we have eternal life. And, but I, again, as I always do, remind you that first John 5.12 is at the end of a book. That's the last chapter of the book of First John. And the first four chapters, four and a half chapters, tell you, obey his commands. Obey his commands. And they tell you to love the Lord your God with all your heart. They tell you to be holy as he is holy, to confess your sin, to trust in Christ, that, that there should be evidence. And the evidence is there to show us that. So all those verses we use for eternal security, that you are in your Father's hand, no one can pluck them out of my hand, um, those are in the context of one who is fully trusted in Christ and his completed work. Once we say Christ didn't do enough to deal with every sin, past, present, and future, to, f- to deal with every aspect of sin, it's, it's a penalty, presence, and power, uh, to deal with original sin as well as the sins we have committed by omission or commission, um, to deal with all of those. Once we undermine the work of Christ and say, "Well, um, you know, it's good to trust in Christ, but you also need you need this baptism thing to wash away your your original sin," which is, of course, the uh, position of your Catholic uh, and also your Anglican. And most of your Protestants did not wander very far from that, either. Um, and so, uh, as soon as you add that in, now Christ wasn't enough. Christ couldn't forgive your original sin, so you have to take care of it through baptism, through this act of law abidingness. And so, uh, it, for many in this in the in the covenant theologian. Circumcision was replaced by baptism. Um, But obviously, not everyone circumcised was a child of God by faith. Uh, Many fell and were under God's judgment who had experienced circumcision uh, in in the flesh, and yet in the Spirit had not given themselves to God. So many have been baptized, even as little infants, and are not people of faith. They are not Christ's. They are not His. And this is the struggle when we start adding anything to the work of Christ. Now Christ isn't sufficient. Once Christ isn't sufficient, you have no relation with God. Because none of you are sufficient either. Where does the list end? And this is not just uh, mainstream Christianity, but uh, the pseudo-Christians like the Mormons, where does it ever end? Ask a Mormon, when does it ever end that you don't have to keep trying to earn your way up the ladder? Well, it never ends. And they don't ever know. That's why Mormons are such good people, is because they're trying to keep a set of laws to attain to something uh, that they're going to attain to by their own works because they have undermined Christ. And He doesn't deliver them. That's why they're estranged from Him, they, they're broken. And that word estranged is that idea that you are separated from him. It's like a married couple that are are separated from each other. You have none of the blessings. You have none of the intimacy. You have really no evidence of any relationship at all. And you have fallen from grace. And you have zero profits in Christ. And these are very strong terms. And we can certainly take each one of these and try to soften them up like many and say, well, all he's saying is you're going to miss all the blessings of your salvation without losing your salvation. Um, but I think in comparison to a lot of other scriptures, we find that there is a sense that when Christ becomes less than your Savior, um, how can you claim to be his child? How can you claim to be a child of God if Jesus is less than your Savior? If he has done less than everything necessary, then how can you claim to be a child of God, joint heirs of Jesus Christ, on your own merit? Never. Can't be done. And so we are said don't be tangled up in this bondage that's waiting for you and yes i um i i give out that warning that uh, for the true believer this is a yoke this is a bond this is slavery why go back and and, uh, be dragged out of your liberty and have your relationship with god strained to such a degree that he would call you fallen from grace that he would call you a strange that he would um, call you a debtor, that he would call you, uh, or Christ, unprofitable to you. Um, and and those are strong terms. And we can, again, try to say, well, you didn't lose your salvation in this passage. Um, but it is evident that if you think Christ is less than everything necessary, um, what value has he made at all? either he completed the law fulfilled it either he met the righteous demands of God and paid the full price or else we have nothing but quicksand around us and we're just sinking so Paul says defend this ground defend this territory called your christian liberty for ev- with everything you've got defend it because with because of what it says about Christ if you if you surrender this little plot of christian liberty You step back away from, well, I can be a Christian without claiming my liberty. Well, realize that the doctrine that robs liberty or takes that away, uh, takes away your Savior. They have basically said Jesus didn't do enough. They have just brought havoc to our entire position in Christianity. And it stops being Christianity. It stops being a savior. He stops being sufficient. He stops. And so your whole salvation message stops. And so that's why defending that area of Christian liberty is so important. And we don't step back away from it. Now we have a couple of things we want to address. Because um, there are some things that seem inconsistent to us. And we want to address those inconsistencies. I don't want you to think that I'm just ignoring them and not trying to give the balance here. Uh, let's deal with the first inconsistency about circumcision. Paul says if you're circumcised, you're indebted now to keep the whole law. Uh, that if that's your teaching that you must be circumcised to enter into a right relation with God in addition to trusting in Jesus, now you are indebted to keep the whole law uh, and we look at his example, and remember that on his second missionary journey, he meets up with a young man named Timothy, who was whose mother and grandmother were Jewish, but his father was Gentile, who hadn't been circumcised. And you might say, well, here's a wonderful opportunity for Paul to push this issue. And instead, what we find is Paul having Timothy get circumcised. You might say, what is Paul doing? This is in violation of this passage. But he was doing it not so that Timothy would be in relationship with God. That was already established. He was doing it so that Timothy could relate to the Jews. This was not a vertical issue of Timothy's circumcision. It was a horizontal one. But the Judaizers were coming in and saying, your relationship with God is dependent upon you being circumcised. What Paul was doing with Timothy is We have a lot of ministry that we're going to be doing to Jews in their synagogues. And it behooves us to have you, not for your sake of your relationship with God, but for your sake of your relationship with them, to be circumcised so you can join me in that. Um, And so he has Timothy circumcised. Again, not so that he's right with God. And Acts makes it very clear that that's the case. For the sake of the Jews... That is, of ministering to them unbelieving Jews, not Judaizers, not those who claim Christ and say you must keep the law. Um, they were to come later, but for the sake of ministering to un, un, uh, believing Jews, to those who who have, have, have not repented, who have not uh, been converted... Uh, for the sake of being able to reach them with the gospel, I'm going to have you circumcised. But we know that he didn't do that across the board. He didn't require Titus to be circumcised because he had no Jewish blood in him. And so Titus remained uncircumcised. And so when Paul visits Jerusalem, he's not going to take Titus into the temple area. He's walking around town with him, but he won't take him in because he's not circumcised. He knows what the rules are of the temple. He didn't violate those. But Timothy, he could take in there. Well, This was the premise of ministry, which is very different. That's a horizontal thing. So that you can reach them, let's have you do this. And again, that's very different. He would have never had Timothy circumcised to satisfy Judaizers. Because he viewed them as false teachers, didn't he? He wasn't worried about making them happy. In fact, he was more than happy to debate them, to fight them, and to kick them out of churches. (laughs) We're not doing this to make Judaizers happy. We do this for this one who was Jewish himself in his bloodline so that he could minister to unbelieving Jews who had never heard the gospel in the synagogues and the regions they go into um, throughout the book of Acts so Timothy could go in there and share in that ministry. A very different attitude than what's going on here, and so we don't—we're not going to buckle under and surrender this patch of ground to people who want to uh, take it over and say, "No, you got to keep the Hebrew calendar and the Hebrew food laws and the Hebrew celebrations and the and all of the and circumcision and all these Hebrew laws, uh, so you have a good relation with God." No, we will never surrender that. But will we do it to reach unbelievers if we have opportunity? Yes. And this is the force of Paul's other statements that seem to be contradictory to this. Where he says that I will surrender facets of my liberty to reach people. Right? He says to the Jew become a Jew, to Gentile, Gentile, to the slave, slave. So I will become what I need to become. And if I need to not eat meat, I won't eat meat. If it helps me reach these people or strengthen the faith of true believers but it is never to give up this territory of christian liberty ever never will i give up that territory and so every instance in which paul is willing to uh bring the boundaries seemingly in tighter on his liberty it is never to maintain a better relationship with God, it is always to expand ministry to others. And so if the matter of eating meat is an issue with this group over here, um, to minister to them, I will just not eat meat that's been offered to idols. I just won't do it. okay? And, And I won't participate in that so that I can minister there. But if it was a group of Judaizers who were requiring that, you better believe that Paul would go in there and he'd just have a big old three-inch steak and throw it on there and start eating away um, to prove the point. I mean, he's done this. He's done this with Peter. He's done this with others. I mean, if you're not weak in the faith, if you're uh, not an unbeliever, then I should be able to exercise my liberty and I can press that issue to see if you're a Judaizer or not, to see if you're a legalist or not. And so... Um, those passages that we find where Paul says, "You know, I'm willing to become all things to all men that I may reach some." That is a ministry of outreach to believers or to unbelievers, to the lost. He's not going to be offensive in violating them, and so when he walks into the synagogues uh, as he travels through, you know, Greece as he travels through. Um, uh, Asia Minor and even into Israel and that region. As he travels into these areas, he's able to go into the synagogue and he would certainly re- do everything that's required in the synagogue so that he can reach the lost people there not to satisfy the Judaizers. And this is really the force of what was happening at the end of the book of Acts. Remember I studied Acts where James says, hey, you know, we're all zealous to keep the law here. And so they make Paul do all this and it just causes a huge problem and I'm convinced that that is one of the reasons that God brings the disaster upon Jerusalem just a few years later in their total destruction is because they were surrendering ground that they should have been standing fast in and that is we are free from the law in Christ Christ has made us free and so we have those couple of instances where it seems to be uh, incompatible with this passage, but I want you to see the difference. The so Jesus says you can't have a relationship with God without the law? What Paul is saying is in order to have a relationship so that I can reach more people with the gospel, I will I will pull in my Christian liberty. I still have it. Remember, he told the Christians, I, I can do this. I can do all things. I, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. But I choose not to do that. And we're going to find that boundary of why do I choose not to explore this area of my Christian liberty? Well, I don't need to. I don't need to explore that because there's disaster. There's areas of that I have full liberty to participate in that I would never do. I have full Christian liberty. Um, let's just uh, let's pick on something uh, easy. I have full Christian liberty to have a beer every now and then. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with that? You're not sure. Right? What is the command in Scripture? Do not be drunk. Okay. I think one beer would probably do it me in right at this point because I've been a I've been a teetotaler all my life, and so. Uh, but uh, theoretically, I could make the claim very strongly. I have a lot of Christians claiming this, and I and, and I just look at them and and I just nod and smile and I agree. Yeah, uh, but recognize that as soon as you take one, now you start to have. Issues of discernment, and now when do you stop? And and of course, I've been in some countries where it is a really good thing to drink the wine, um, because the water will make you very ill. And uh, but that's wine, very different, than, somewhat different than beer, much less uh, 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 alcoholic in its content. And so uh, we can make that argument. Well. So why don't you, Pastor? Well, look around. Look around at the horrible effect of alcohol on our society. How many more people have to die? We got our roads covered with DWI signs right now, don't we? The super blitz is on. I mean, we keep burying people and burying people and burying people Um, because of alcohol and we can see families destroyed and destroyed and we see horrible things happening to children and to spouses we see rapes happening we see all kinds of things happening uh, on alcohol if you think that this is all new it isn't it goes all the way back to Noah got in trouble because of alcohol so I look at it and I say, yes, I have liberty. In fact, I have a command in Scripture, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. But at this point, our water supply in this country and my food supply and my access to other medicines is, is so good, I don't need to use that form of medicine. I have the liberty to do that, but I don't need to do that. So why don't I participate in it? Because it is a problem in our society. And I refuse to add to that problem, and so I want to take a stand, distance myself away from it sufficiently. Not that I tell people, well, you, you know, if you're drinking any alcohol at all, you know, you can't go to heaven. Well, that's not in the Bible. They do have the liberty, and so I don't condemn people for that. But I would never do it myself because of what it might do to my mind, to my testimony to my ability to minister to others from a position of strength, of holiness. Similarly with relationships. I have a very strong position with our young people. My position with our young people is, well, I got to the point of getting married and there's only one girl I've ever been with. Not just Sexually, I've ever kissed. There's only one. It can be done if I could do it in the seventies. Think about the seventies, okay? Sixties and seventies. Think the Roberts are going, yeah. Wow, if you could do that in the seventies, in the sixties and seventies, it was free love everywhere, baby. Right? Psychedelic, and we. There was. That was before all the STDs really came out. All the AIDS stuff, as before all of that. And man, it was a free-for-all. But I have great position. I could tell them, there's only one woman in the world I've ever romantically kissed. Ever. My life. That's really strong, high ground. Does that mean that I have, that if that wasn't true, that I didn't have the liberty to kiss other girls? Probably not, because they wouldn't let me know. <laughs> um Would it have been sin? Uh, No, but I have this incredible, strong, high ground to minister out of and to call people to uh, a stand, to a position. And so Paul is going to take these positions, and he says, yes, I can impose these things on myself, but I never impose them on others as a way of saying you cannot please God unless you live like me. I can't do that. It would be wrong. It would be egregious to my Savior to do that because I'm undermining his work and the liberty that he gives us. But it gives me an opportunity to have a very strong position and to say, don't tell me it can't be done because I have done it by the grace of God and in the power of Jesus Christ. You can live that way. I lived that way and God cared for me. Um, and now I have the capacity to minister in a in a fullness that that I may not have had if I couldn't make those statements and declarations. and so uh, we're going to talk more about this in two weeks, but that is the purpose of any personal limitations on our own individual liberty that we use. But in terms of our doctrine, the boundary can only be the boundary of scripture, not your preferences, not your personal ones. But rather, what are God's boundaries? And we're going to discover those boundaries um, in weeks to come. And they're going to be very important here in Galatians and walking into the Spirit uh, and what it means and what's entailed there. Um, but recognize that there's a that in terms of your relationship with God, you don't surrender any facet of liberty. And so I'm not going to let anyone encroach on this God's boundary. I'm not going to let anyone... Chop that away and say, No, you have to have, if you're not doing this, if you're not, and that's what's so terrible about those that say, Well, you're not carrying the right Bible, you're probably not a good Christian, if you're a believer at all. And I've had people say, You can't get saved unless you got saved out of this version. You have just estranged Christ. You're saying Christ wasn't enough, you also need the right version of the Bible to get saved. So it's real today. It's still going on today. People are still doing this. Saying this is absolutely necessary and we are seeing the, the ground of our Christian liberty eroded away and Paul's command is stand on it. Stand for it. Defend it with everything you have because as soon as that's gone you have no salvation to speak of because Christ has been eroded. The work of Christ is insufficient. Then, and now we're all in trouble. And so stand on this: you are free in Christ. But we're going to see a boundary that is something to uh, attain to, and something to to uh, uh, speak of, and to really uh, define ourselves by, and not these laws the Judaizers wanted to enforce. So we're going to see that develop more in weeks to come. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. We thank you for the liberty that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you so much that he has done it all, that he has paid it all, that we need add nothing to it, and that we have complete freedom from sin's power, penalty, and presence. Lord, our prayer is that in that blessed state of having you meeting all the requirements for us and granting us all the liberty and that we can now walk in your spirit. And Lord, help us to guard our hearts and minds from conveying and from being wrongly convinced that we need something more than you to be citizens of heaven and members of your family and Lord give us the strength and the understanding of your word and the faith and your spirit to defend this ground to stand and let no one extract from um, this this area of liberty that you have paid for at such a great price. We thank you for it. In Christ Jesus' name.